and we have got as far as chapter 10 and we're going to spend two Sundays looking at chapter 10 so to be honest I'm only going to nibble at the edges of it today let's ask God's help Lord we have some really thought-provoking things to think about this morning please enable speaker and hearers so that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may have eyes to see wonderful things out of your word for Jesus sake Amen Amen Now we're looking in the book of Romans we're looking in the chapters 9, 10 and 11 which have a particular emphasis and a particular argument and a particular line of thought Uh, and what I would like to do is pull some threads from that whole line of thought this morning the question that he's answering is well no let me wind that back here is a question that people ask how is it that so many people or that some people or that so many people or these particular people do not believe in Jesus Christ there's a question how is it that in this world there is such a thing as not believing in Jesus Christ and that's a question that an evangelist might ask and say why is it Lord that I go and preach the gospel it's the same gospel that people preach in other places there people believe but here people don't seem to believe it it's an evangelist question it's an anxious parents question how is it that there are so many members of my family who are believers in Jesus Christ and yet this member of my family or that member of my family whom I love who has heard just as much as everybody else doesn't believe how can that be it may be the question of a detached philosopher who is looking at the statistics but let me say that Paul is not taking the position of a a detached philosopher as he asks the question you notice in chapter 10 verse 1 he says brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved for I testify about them that they're zealous for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge and he is dealing with this particular question of unbelief as it crystallizes around Israel and as Paul talks about this because he does crystallize it around Israel that's that's where he, he focuses this he is far from detached he said at the beginning of chapter 9 I speak the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers those of my own race the people of Israel he says I really care about this it's not just a detached philosophical question although you do need to think hard about it but it's something that I really feel deeply and makes me long and pray and act so uh, as we come and look at this please don't let us be simply detached about it let's catch something of Paul's involvement with this question some people don't believe now why is it a particularly why does it particularly crystallize around the question of Israel well here are some thoughts on that that the salvation that is offered to the whole world is the great gift of Israel's God who offers salvation to the whole world who is the only God who offers salvation to the whole world he's Israel's God he's the God who revealed himself in the Old Testament why don't his people believe him and the scriptures that Israel had the most precious gift of all the nations in the in the in the world they had the words of God and it's those words that speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how is it then that Israel who had that enormous privilege doesn't believe 
Or putting it another way, how is it that Israel clings to her scriptures but understands them differently? And as Paul writes, he is thinking of orthodox Jews, of zealous Jews, who cling to the scriptures and say, these don't speak about Jesus Christ. These speak about the law and being kosher and sticking to that and that's the way of salvation and Paul is saying is answering the question how can that be how can things go wrong so much and if you were around in the autumn we when we were looking at the previous chapter I drew a little picture like this uh, a timeline of history here is Israel moving forward through history and learning more about God and then there comes in the, uh, Jesus Christ who is like a rock uh, and this rock is a rock that some people can stand on and be secure but as he says in chapter 9 verse 33 see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble a rock that makes them fall the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame so some people trust in him and gain absolute security but other people stumble over him and Paul says well how, how is it that Israel more or less uh, en masse the majority seems to have stumbled over this rock and more than that uh, although some stand on the rock and go forward other people these little blue people here that's the other nations get grafted in this is an amazing thing it's Israel's salvation yet uh, when Jesus Christ comes everything radically changes it's grace not race and although some of Israel do believe many don't but many people who are not Israel at all get drawn in and have the same blessings that Israel God, Israel's God gives and uh, so that's what Paul is looking at and that's what's going on in these chapters is Mark here? no are you with me so far? yes okay right now why do some people not believe here are two ways that Paul does not answer the question how is it that some people are not saved two ways that Paul does not answer the question he could have said but he doesn't say ah salvation is something that you've got to earn by working hard at it and some people are just lazy he could have said that he could have said it's like an exam and there's, there's the exam, 100%, 90%, 80%, 75%. And God puts the pass mark. He could have said this, but he didn't. God puts the pass mark at whatever, 85%. So, obviously, some people are good enough, and there they are smiling. We're good enough. We passed God's exam. And other people aren't good enough, and they failed, and they're just not good enough. They don't try hard enough. They're not spiritual enough and the people uh, at the top can congratulate themselves and say well we're very good look at us did that all myself and the people who don't well they're that's that's why they're there because they're just not good enough and I'm saying Paul does not answer the question that way because that is not the nature of Christian salvation please look at I'm going to pick up a scattering of verses to line up with these things chapter 3 verse 20 he says no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law rather through the law we become conscious of sin so he's saying in particular if we're thinking about obeying the law of Moses it's not there to give you a pass mark uh, if you want to put it in those terms the pass mark is 100% and nobody ever gets it it's impossible to keep the law in that sense no one will be declared righteous by observing the law and also he says in 327 
Well, if it, if, you, if it was by keeping the law, then you could boast. And Paul says, it absolutely gives no room for boasting. 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, on that of faith. He says, faith the salvation of Jesus Christ by faith does not allow people to boast. It just doesn't work like that. The law, yeah, that would have done, but we're not talking about by the law. So that's one thing that he doesn't say. He doesn't say salvation is by human attainment. And here's another thing that he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, some people don't believe because it's just down to their free will. He doesn't say, well, you see, God just, this is the way it is, God stands by and waits. He can't interfere. He can't do anything to make people believe. Uh, that's down to them. He just is entirely hands off. And that's why some people do believe and some people don't. Uh, he does not use the free will argument. Here is sort of the free will argument. It says there's, this, there's a human being and they have the ability to choose either God or sin. And they have that ability and God just lets them choose. Oh, that's interesting, he chose that. Oh, that's interesting, he chose that. That way, of course, God could not ever guarantee that anybody will be saved because he just doesn't know, does he? The God who has that scenario could not give us a picture in the book of Revelation of the 144,000 redeemed saints in heaven because God just doesn't know whether there will be anybody in heaven at all really because they could all choose not to you see and God does not use Paul does not use the free will argument the free will argument the, the free will situation would still allow boasting people could say well you see although I didn't do, keep the law I did have faith so good for me that was from me that faith and of course it's, it has an entirely inadequate understanding of sin sinners are sinners sinners are sinners in every part of them their hearts are sinful their choice mechanism is simple, uh, sinful and as Paul says himself you know, what would sinners do if you leave them to themselves they would never choose God not in a million years and he says in chapter 3 verse 10 there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands no one who seeks God all have turned away they have become together worthless he has a very very negative view of the spiritual abilities of human beings they would not choose God they would run away from him we're born like spiritual woodlice who don't come to the light not spiritual moths who do come to the light so those two things that he doesn't say he doesn't uh, use the idea of legalism and he doesn't use the idea that people can uh, are entirely free and might do uh, have the capacity to choose God so what I'm going to do this morning is to give us some a theological toolkit so that we can follow Paul's argument through chapters 9 through to 11 and we won't use the toolkit very much this morning I'm just going to get the toolkit out and show you some of these different theological spanners and screwdrivers and um, knitting needles and all the things whatever that they might be and I'm doing this because I think we need these to follow Paul's argument, otherwise we'll get confused. And what I would like to do is to give some things a name. It's very difficult to talk about something unless you give it a name. And once you've given it a name, you can start to talking about it. Naming things, or these particular things, is not meant to remove their mystery but to help us to understand better the depth of the mystery of what is going on here so that we can say at the end of it as Paul says oh the depth of the riches 
of the wisdom and knowledge of God how amazing uh, and so that we can better worship God so let's take a look at some of these theological tools here is tool number one free moral agency free moral agency it's a theological term uh, it means the reality of personal responsibility even if you never thought of the name everybody knows exactly what this means uh, I'm just giving a name for something it's saying that people are responsible for their moral choices now God knows that some people have a more difficult life than others and some people have advantages that other people don't have and so on so I'm including that there's degrees of responsibility but basically speaking we are responsible for our moral choices and people can't blame God for their wrong decisions that's my point so if you choose to do something um, you can't blame God and say well he made me do this wrong thing and that we find in chapter 9 verse 19 so we looked at this in previous weeks but I didn't give it a name but here I'm backtracking and giving this a name and saying there is the rightness of blaming people if they sin so in 919 one of you will say to me well why does God still blame us for who resists his will you can't blame me I did something wrong but it's God's fault and Paul says who are you O oh man to talk back to God he says how dare you do that how dare you try and blame God for your sin you are a free moral agent if you chose to sin you don't blame God for it you take the blame yourself so we are different for example from something like a gun so if a gun fires say well it's the gun's fault and the gun would say no I'm just a machine it's somebody pulled the trigger it's their fault do you see what I mean now a gun is different we are not guns we are not machines we are people and if we fire off sin it's our fault and rather than try to rationalize sin and excuse sin I once had a, a very very big book from a Dutch theologian it's about that thick called sin and it had loads and loads of chapters and at one point in it the theologian says do you know that whatever you think about sin and however you try and excuse it and understand it bottom line is the only thing to do with sin is confess it the only thing to do with sin is to say I was wrong I was out of order it's my fault can't get out of that and you know for some people to come to that point it takes them years they spend years saying oh it's my parents fault oh it's my background's fault and redemption only comes when we say to the Lord Jesus Christ actually that's a load of nonsense it's my fault and I need to be forgiven so my first uh, theological tool is that of free moral agency or be the reality of personal responsibility my second theological tool is the thought as I've said uh, a moment ago of free will in the sense that people have power within themselves to choose God and his ways and to say the Bible does not teach free will in that sense it teaches free moral agency it teaches that if you sin it's your fault but it does not teach that everybody has the capacity to either sin or not just as they please and in particular in coming to Jesus Christ in John 6 verse 44 Jesus says no one can come to me unless the Father draws him no one can come to me we are spiritually stuck our human spirituality our human 
decision making is not capable of turning to God unless God enables us to do that and that's what Paul is saying in a quite a profound way in chapter 9 verse 16 where he says about the bottom line in salvation he says it does not depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy does not this is the bottom line it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy something for us to come to terms with I think if you're a Christian you've already come to terms with that but you just might not realize it because when you when you think of your salvation do you ever say to God I thank you God that I that I was clever enough and spiritual enough to choose you or do you say I thank you God that when I was blind you opened my eyes I thank you God that when my heart was hard you softened it I thank you God that I when I was busy running the other way you came and drew me back because without you I would never have turned to you I think you pray the second prayer don't you so the free will I'm saying the Bible teaches free moral agency but it does not teach free will in the sense that I've written it there so my third theological tool is the uh, what is sometimes called grace just full stop or salvation by grace a little bit longer or salvation by God's grace and that is a, a sort of slogan term which means something like this I didn't deserve salvation I never would have found Christ without God I was blind and deaf and hard and he opened my eyes and opened my ears and gave me a new heart he saved me not out of my deserving but out of his mercy and as you can see all these things link up together isn't that exactly what Paul says in chapter 9 verse 15 where he says how does it all work isn't it like God says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so mercy compassion grace more or less uh, meaning the same thing uh, certainly in the same ballpark and God saying how does it all work with, with sinners do I wait for them to deserve something and score a certain amount he says no it doesn't work like that at all because it, what, the, how it works is I decide to have mercy and who tells me who to have mercy on I decide it and I have compassion on people and how do I decide who to have compassion on people well I, that's my business I decide it I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion and it is a free unforced choice from God and I suppose we might find that rather humbling we think well surely there's something special about me and the answer is no the only thing that made you any different from anybody else was that God decided to have mercy on you I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion and the more you think about it the more humbling it is and you might start to think oh, I'm not quite sure about all this don't think I like this but just think about it what it is doing is putting sinners in the place that we ought to be in and putting God in the place that he ought to be in God is in charge he is sovereign the whole world is in his hands it's not that he's in our hands we're in his hands and if God says that's the way it is that's the way it is I have compassion on whom I have compassion and I have mercy on whom I will have mercy and our best course of action is not to argue with God about it but humbly to accept what he says so that was number four salvation by grace 
Uh, sorry, what did I say? Number three, number four, this is number four. So here is a, a fourth name. The free offer of the gospel or the free offer of the gospel of Christ or sometimes called the free offer. Um, I've missed something out. I think in my notes I meant to put let me get my pen. I meant to put the general call of the gospel. And you say, the Bible never has the word general call, uh, and it doesn't, but it's giving a name to something that is in the Bible. And this is a name which hopefully is helpful. And by this, we mean the genuine heartfelt call to all men and women to come in faith to Christ for salvation and if you like that's what chapter 10 is majoring on it's saying we proclaim this message of faith if you've got there chapter 10 it's, he says it in verse 8 the word is near you, that is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. He's saying, this is the message. It all fits together. You might not quite have thought it fitted together, but it does. There is this general call. There is this free offer. And you said, and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. A moment ago you said that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And you say, yes, it says that. And it also says that there is this general call to all and sundry to come to Jesus Christ. And you might get a little bit of a headache reconciling those two. Well, don't get the headache. Just accept that God is so great that he can say things that um, we find difficult to grasp. But we are to accept them in faith and in worship. Oh, the wonders of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He has compassion on whom he will have compassion. But he issues this general call and says to all sinners, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And uh, chapter 10, verse 8, Paul says, this is the word that we are proclaiming. Um, Paul is gladly describing himself in his worldwide mission to go not only to Israel but to Spain and Italy and Turkey and Albania and North Africa and all the places that he would be thinking of going to and say to in each of those places and you too if you believe in Jesus Christ you will be saved if you believe in Jesus Christ you will be saved that is the word of faith that he heralds. And in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, he puts it uh, in this sort of logical, forceful, logical way. The whole business of faith is calling on the Lord. And how can they call in one they haven't believed in? Verse 14. And how can they believe in one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? and how can they preach unless they're sent unless they're apostled unless they're sent out from God with this gospel and that's exactly what they have been uh, as it is written in the Old Testament how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news he says that's what God is doing he's sending people out he's a missionary God he's a calling God he's a generous God he's an, a, 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 a God who likes to bring people in there is the free offer of the gospel. Number five. Are you with me on the free offer of the gospel? It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. 
Uh, if you've ever been involved in speaking to people in that sort of way, you will have had the privilege in your heart of sort of feeling the things that God feels and thinking the thoughts that God thinks. Oh, that this person could be saved. Oh, that those people, that person's eyes would be opened. If you were but to come to Jesus Christ and believe, you would be saved. What riches would be yours? Number five, the effectual call. Now, what this is flagging up is that Paul uses the word call with more than one meaning. So this, if you like, is God's... There's a general call and there is a special call and it links up with uh, God's choice and the Bible uses the word election not to mean putting votes into a what do you put votes into? ballot box but choosing something an election is when you choose the government and God chooses people and this has been referred to in these chapters and what I'm saying about the effectual call is that God so calls that people actually hear and believe this is a miracle this is a great miracle if anybody hears the gospel and puts their trust in Jesus Christ that is a profound miracle from the power and the grace of God this is the calling that actually gets through to somebody and if you like it is similar you could think of Lazarus dead in the tomb and you try calling to Lazarus Lazarus come out of course he's dead dead people can't hear what you say but Jesus his word has the power to say Lazarus come out and out comes the dead man there was power in the word of Jesus Christ to bring life to the dead this is an effective the old fashioned word which we tend to use effectual the call that gets through and there is that that is one of the ways in which which Paul uses the word call so look in chapter 8 verse 30 this is the call which in God's mysterious plan is not just the general call but God chooses to give extra power to his word so that as well as the general call on the outside there's a, a, a sort of voice of the Holy Spirit within, within which says and this is you, you do this, this is for you in verse 30, chapter 8 verse 30 those he predestined he also called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified you see it's not the general call he's not saying he called everybody and he justified everybody and he glorified everybody he's saying there is a within that general call there is a, a specific a specific particular personalized call and those he predestined I don't know who those are God knows those he called and they heard and those who heard he justified put them right with God and those he justified Paul's looking forward they're going to be in glory there is a particular personalized effectual call and he uses the the idea of call uh, to me to be not that much different to choosing if you look back into chapter well at chapter 8 verse 30 we've looked at but look at chapter 9 verse 11 which we have looked at but I don't know whether you would have noticed it because I didn't give a theological spanner to uh, take this verse apart uh, chapter 9 verse 11 looking about looking at Rebecca's twins before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told 
the older will serve the younger and as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated here's the undeserving one not the earning one the, the, the earning one would be the, the older son because he deserves to be blessed but it's the undeserving one Jacob who as you know was called the crafty schemer he's the one who gets blessed and why does he get blessed because God says I'd like to bless him this is my policy this is the way my policy works my purpose in election did you notice that not by works but by God who decides who he's going to call so you've got the the effectual call or the special call which in this verse he links up says well this is this is God choosing to bless people and he might say oh, I don't think I can get on with this well I didn't say it was easy and Paul himself doesn't say it's easy he says when he's finished three chapters of this he breathes a sigh and says wow the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out well you think well I thought we could be able to trace out his paths and Paul says no I can see, you can see where the paths go but to trace it out it's beyond us and I think, I think as we think of it in these terms we can see it is beyond us so there was number five the effectual call and I'm going to uh, put these two together there is uh, so here's a, here's a technical word reprobation and then a more obvious English word hardening I'm going to put those two together so if God chooses to bless some people what about the other people uh, and reprobation is not a term I don't think that's used in the Bible but it does the Bible just occasionally touches on this matter and says God would speaking on from God's point of view there is a destiny of those whom God does not call but he just omits to call them and bypasses them and uh, they have a destiny too it's a it's a, a, a terrible destiny and that's I think putting it from the Godward side and we tremble and we hesitate to put ourselves that say that we can fully understand things from God's point of view but perhaps we could see things from a human point of view which is what hardening um, not entirely but more humanly the process in which the sinner freely chooses and grows in rebellion and rejection of God's kind and reasonable invitations so a mysterious process there is such a process as hardening you may even have seen it happen that people who begin by being a little bit open uh, then they get put off a bit and then they use that as an excuse to get put off more and a process goes on by which they say well don't talk to me about Christian things and they get harder and you may even be conscious of that process in your own heart ebbing and flowing things that you used to be uh, really keen on you're a bit indifferent about now and, you're, and the prayer is Lord don't let my heart get hard don't let my heart get hard uh, reprobation I'm saying we could think of it from God's point of view and the hardening process and Paul talks at some length about this he talks about Pharaoh in chapter 9 verse 17 do you remember Pharaoh in the days of the exodus Pharaoh Moses went to Pharaoh and said God says let my people go that they may worship me and Pharaoh says I don't know the Lord I'm not going to do what he says and do you remember that process by which the plagues racked up the pressure on Pharaoh and he almost got to the point of agreeing and then he changed his mind and having got used to the idea of changing his mind he got better at it and then again he would agree with more pressure and in the end he was totally hard 
there is a process of hardening. It's a process, it isn't just something that God says, right, you're going to be hard like that. It generally includes the toing and froing of hearing from God and refusing him and all of that sort of thing as free moral agents. But bottom line, God is in charge of that. Chapter 9, verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up, you hard, rebellious arrogant person I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth you think you've put a spanner in the works of my purposes but actually I had you in my hand all the time and even your arrogance serves my purposes therefore verse 18 God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. That's fearsome, isn't it? What a terrible statement that God is able to harden people. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once preached uh, a sermon which shocked people about us being in the hands of God. And the his his action point was cry out to God because you don't realize how your life hangs sort of by a thread and the thread is in the hand of God cry out to him and say Lord I need to be saved don't let me get hard you could make me hard if you wanted to please don't let me get hard please show mercy to me I can't manage this on my own I'm in a complete pickle unless you save me there is this process of hardening and we tremble to speak about it the Bible uh, speaks about it, it doesn't, it's not a button that the Bible keeps pressing but it is there and my final couple of points here righteousness righteousness by faith in Christ compared with righteousness by human works or works of the law or own righteousness people can put the same idea in different terms and we find that in chapter 9 verses 31 33 and chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 which we look at you see Christ comes upon the scene comes upon the scene in history he comes upon the scene in your life and he asserts here is a way to be right with God it is not by you doing the best you can or turning over a new leaf it is by you abandoning that and saying you've got to save me the righteousness by which I stand has got to be the righteousness that you God give me through what Jesus Christ achieved don't understand exactly how that all happened but I know that I, that's what I need and as Christ comes there's a moment of, 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 of crisis and people might not always respond rightly and well to it and in chapter 9 verse 30 he says well what should we say he says the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it a righteousness that is by faith and when it was said to them you wretched messed up Gentiles you can be clean and right and stand before God boldly because of what Jesus Christ did and the Gentiles said yes please but Israel said no I don't want that I'll do it my own way do you see what he's saying? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it as if not by faith, but as if by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. And he says the same thing in chapter 10, doesn't he? My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I testify about them. They are zealous for God, but it's just a stupid zealous, uh, a stupid zeal. It's not based on knowledge. 
since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own. They sought to build something up and say, this is what I've done, I'm righteous. Look how kosher I am. Look how generous I am. Da, da, da. They did not submit to God's own righteousness. Do you get the flavor of that word submit? It's a flavor of pride, isn't it? They were too proud. They were too full of themselves to, to, to submit. Jesus Christ says, I can give you righteousness just as a gift. You can just have that off the shelf, if you like. And the Jews say, no, I don't. No. See how human pride in this, exemplified hugely in this particular case is the enemy of faith in Jesus Christ. They sought their own righteousness instead of trusting the Lord. They tried to do it by doing instead of trusting. Well, those are the, um, whatever, eight or nine uh, ideas which Paul is using and combining and fitting together in these chapters and so I haven't done very much apart from just give you those ideas but I don't know whether you get the sense of how they all fit together they do fit together faith in Christ brings us into this world of grace of grace that is not because I've done anything and it must come from God and how does it come from God well mysteriously and deeply it comes from a God who says I have compassion on whom I will have compassion and how is it that some people don't believe well it comes I mean, they can't blame God they're free moral agents they can't blame God well how is it God who says I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I harden whom I, whom I will harden it all fits together in understanding truly and deeply the way of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to give some bullet points of response. And I think our first response is to worship God. If we can grasp a little bit of what's being said here or let it grasp us, there is wisdom here that makes us rather than saying yeah I got the hang of that yeah I got the hang of that got the hang of that it makes us say wow I didn't realise it was so deep and so amazing so beyond my human capacity and that's what Paul does isn't it he worships God and I want to say it should make us worship God and I think it also should give us humility about our own spiritual abilities the gospel does that doesn't it the gospel makes us humble. Unless we, unless we become like little children, we can't enter the kingdom of God. But here are some more hooks to hang that humility on and to help us to be humble. Where did your faith come from, by the way? It was a gift of God. Who, who originally thought of being saved, of you being saved? It wasn't you, was it? It was God. Your salvation has its origins. That back in the deep mysteries of the plan of God before the world was made. What was God thinking about before he made uh, subatomic particles and quarks and supernovae? He was thinking about you. He was thinking about you and how much he wanted you to be with him in glory and all the things that he would do to ensure that that would be so. I think it gives us a deep gratitude for salvation in Jesus Christ. It is so easy for us to think that salvation and being a Christian, it, we can contract that thought to, oh, it's what I do on a Sunday morning uh, and it's what I do uh, at such and such a time during the week. It's almost like a hobby. Almost like a, a, a bit of you know, my leisure activities. And this brings us back to the reality of saying, it isn't that, is it? It is earth-shattering. It is deeper 
than the creation of the planets that God chose you and sent his son to die for you and through some extraordinary processes in time and space brought you to faith and through further extraordinary and miraculous processes will bring you to glory and you, will, you cannot begin to understand what that will be like so I'm saying deep gratitude for salvation in Christ you know, being a Christian isn't just a tick on the census form is it Roman Catholic uh, Baptist uh, Jedi Christian oh Christian yeah yeah if we've grasped Paul's way of thinking of this this doesn't make us into abstract philosophers but it makes us people who uh, pray intensely now maybe you've been listening to this and you think I haven't understood much of it but I know that I'm not part of it I know that I couldn't honestly say yep this is all, all to do with me in which case I would say what this is saying is how intensely you should make this a matter of prayer I want to be in on this and I gather that it is actually much more difficult and much more much more big you can't say much more big I'm going to say it but it's bigger than I thought it was and if I'm to have this Lord my God you must help me you must do a miracle intense prayer for your own salvation I think I'll be a Christian no you won't not like that you won't being a Christian is a sort of on your knees crying out to God heart business with God you don't actually have to be on your knees but you know what I mean it's that sort of weightiness about what it is to be a Christian and then the salvation of others did you get did you grasp something of Paul's depth of concern where he says I could almost wish that I was in that I'd been sent to hell if that would if that would save some of these other people do you have any, you know I it's a, it's a good preacher's trick isn't it to, to say to people you know, do, you, do you feel this, do you long for this but it's not a million miles from the right thing to say is it this is what Paul said I really could wish because salvation is so important and so profound I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers do we have anything of that? could we have more of that and then I'm going to come back and say having said all of that oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor who has ever given to God so that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen